And you can argue that the spreads are roughly 50 basis points to a dependent 100 basis points higher. Where we like to you know, start to point out is, is that uh, it really depends on the businesses that are coming through the pipeline. And so what you find now is that great businesses uh, that have not been heavily impacted by COVID, these are the ones that it, uh, easily attract the capital. And so we've been impressed with the quality the underlying quality of the deal flow, as well as the structures that we as lenders are able to put in uh, to protect our principal investment. So better business, better structures, slightly better spreads, right? And, uh, and, and a lot of that will depend on the spread dynamic on how long duration and additional shutdowns to the extent they occur, how long this um, uh, COVID morass uh, continues. That was John Bach, Chief Financial Officer of Barings BDC. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Barings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I'd like to welcome you to episode number five of season three of Streaming Income. Throughout the season, we'll be bringing you in depth conversations with experts on asset classes like EM debt, high yield, real estate, and more. Remember, if you'd like to receive our latest insights as soon as they become available, you can subscribe to the show by searching Streaming Income on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. On today's show, I spoke with John Bach. John is the Chief Financial Officer for Barings BDC, Barings Capital Investment Corp, and two Barings Closed End Funds. He is also a Managing Director within the firm's private assets business, and leads the firm's permanent capital efforts. John joined Barings in 2018 from Wells Fargo, where he was a top-rated research analyst covering business development companies, or BDCs. He was recently named one of 2020's rising stars by private debt investor, who recognized him as one of 40 individuals under the age of 40 who have the potential to shape the future of private debt. In the conversation, we talked about the current state of affairs in the private credit market. Specifically, we discussed if investors are being adequately compensated for the risk they are taking in private credit today, particularly in light of the pandemic. We talked about the competitive landscape and whether or not there is too much capital chasing the same deals in this space. We discussed where the most attractive value is today across private debt markets And finally, we spoke about the pros and cons of accessing middle market loans via different investment vehicles, including commingled funds, separately managed accounts, and public and private BDCs. So with that, please enjoy this conversation with John Bach. All right, John Bach, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Greg. It's a pleasure to be back. I'm excited to have you back. It's been a little while since uh, <laughs> since you've been here on uh, Streaming Income, so we've got a lot to catch up on. Believe it or not, I actually think the last time we did this was perhaps a week or a week and a half before uh, the COVID news really started to spike and the associated yeah. shutdowns that occurred. So um, pretty odd timing, right? Uh, but at yeah, the same time... Yeah. Those concepts that we talked about throughout the entirety of this recession and difficult time period. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think we spoke back in sort of early March time, uh, right before all the, the shutdowns and everything else. So, um, and I want to talk about um, 
what's obviously been going on in, in private credit markets uh, since then, because like the rest of the world, a tremendous amount has gone on over that time period. Um, but maybe before we get into that market discussion, uh, I know that you and your colleagues here at Bearings have been quite busy during that time period as well, specifically with a few strategic ventures. So would you mind uh, telling our listeners a little bit about what you and the team have been up to there? Sure. I mean, we'll start with um, an easy one. So our publicly traded BDC, Bearings BDC, uh, recently announced its intent to acquire MBC Capital. And uh, really, that's just a function of a great opportunity that it can exist when you combine companies at points when asset prices are attractive. And so you can see that that um, announcement was made in August and is uh, on track to close uh, by year end. Additionally, uh, you can see that uh, our, our friends across the pond continue to, to demonstrate a, a strong and um, a stable origination network with very, very high quality assets. And as a result, uh, worked very closely with Mubadala, one of the world leading uh, LPs in a uh, European joint venture that's focused on European middle market credit. And then additionally, uh, another joint venture with a very large and respected LP in the United States, the state of South Carolina. Carolina in working in partnership with Bearings BDC also continued to ramp a very strategic venture focused on both middle markets as well as uh, as well as broader liquid credit uh, to take advantage of the volatility that had occurred in the uh, the spring and summer time frame. So uh, three three big points uh, keeping everybody very busy, uh, but also very accretive to, uh, to 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 long term shareholder returns. Well, yeah, that's that sounds like you and the team have been quite busy, uh, you know, possibly against all odds, uh, given the year that the, the world is having here. So I've, uh, uh, I've enjoyed, you know, watching some of these you know, press releases come out on some of these ventures. Uh, and it sounds like a lot of uh, important work is, is being done. So that's, that's great um, to hear about that. The last time we spoke, as we discussed, was back in March. And at that time, actually, you had just written a paper called uh, Four Mistakes Investors Make in Private Credit. I have it sitting here on the desk right in front of me, John. I just gave it a reread. Wow. And wow. Uh, there's a lot of great stuff in there. But I have to say, maybe my most favorite thing about it is all the colorful analogies <laughs> that you used throughout that paper. Uh, you talk about seeing the investment landscape in technicolor versus monochromatic. You talk about sizzle and steak. Oh, you yeah. talk about and you talk about how uh, how to a hammer everything looks like a nail. You have to read the paper to actually understand what all of that means. Maybe we'll get into some of that discussion here. But um, but anyhow, you just released that paper, and obviously it discusses a lot of the trends that you were seeing at the time. And it raises some concerns, or you did raise some concerns about some of the practices that you were witnessing in direct lending markets at that time. That's right. So maybe let's start there. I mean, one of the overarching concerns that you raised back then was around whether or not investors, you know, were being adequately compensated for the risk they were taking, especially relative to some of the more liquid asset classes. So remind us if you if you would be so kind, uh, what you were concerned about at the time, and then update us in terms of where we are now. Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the, the main concern over time, really, uh, back then, which is always an, an important focus for anyone who's disciplined, is that uh, the wrong businesses with the wrong structures were finding themselves in the private credit marketplace getting uh, pretty, um, we'll call it, 
loose um, and or um, I'll call it attractive to the borrower financing. Now, that's not great if you're a lender. And so what happens is, and, and this was you know, several several months ago, before the the COVID crisis, is you'd start to see spreads on private negotiated paper, very 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 close to where you can see certain liquid markets. And when you don't have an illiquidity premium, meaning because remember you can't sell these loans as you'd be able to sell uh, perhaps a you know a small stake you had in a much larger company if you bought a five million dollar piece of a billion dollar loan. Right, that that lack of illiquidity premium and the risk that was introduced into those obligors, either through structural risk, the borrower can do whatever they want, or the type of business, right? You know, the heavy cyclical, etc. That's what raised a high level of concern. And you know, when you have the wrong businesses and the wrong capital structures, right? When you're tying yourself up for a, a long haul, right, and, and this is sponsored lending, so you're doing it also alongside a private equity sponsor, um, that can be a pretty poor combination for investor outcome in the future. So that was the worry then. And the, and, and the reason, the worry with all the sizzle and steak and all the analogies that we outlined, that was effectively the, the byproduct of a lot of those poor incentives. And so, kind of what happened? Well, the answer was pretty clear. If you were in a hypercyclical business, think of restaurant or retail, right? Uh, you, you'll find that, that, that EBITDA is likely lower than where it was when you first lent, right? So there's difficulty there. And two, if you weren't getting adequate compensation and spread, and most importantly, had poor documentation, we'd start to find that that borrowers will unfortunately take advantage of those during periods of stress. And you started to see these companies either through revolver usage or others uh, push the limit and, um, you know, certainly cause, I'll call it, you know, angst on behalf of, of the lender community that had provided uh, those types of loans. And so, really, it, it planned out like you would have expected it to. If you were disciplined and focusing on core, what we often like to call boring is beautiful style businesses and proper capital stacks. Yeah, I've heard Ian Fowler uh, uh, mention that terminology a few times. It's a wonderful term because it, it speaks to what you're able to do over time, right? If, if what you have is a very boring and stable business, that is, a, that is very good from a lending perspective. And so, you know, we sit here today finding that if you made the choice to be conservative and disciplined, that allowed you now to be in a wonderful position to drive strong long-term return for shareholders as some folks have pulled back from the market in light of uh, recent difficulty. Okay. So if at that time, you know, you were seeing spreads, whether they were equivalent to what you were seeing in the broadly syndicated loan space, or maybe even just close to, has that dynamic changed now? So if spreads widened out or, you know, and are there enough transactions that have been done to be able to make a generalized call like that? There are, yeah. And you can argue that the spreads are roughly 50 basis points to a dependent 100 basis points higher. Where we like to you know, start to point out is, is that uh, it really depends on the businesses that are coming through the pipeline. And so what you find now is that great businesses uh, that have not been heavily impacted by COVID, these are the ones that it, uh, easily attract the capital. And so we've been impressed with the quality, the underlying quality of the deal flow, as well as the structures that we as lenders are able to put in uh, to protect our principal investment. So better business, better structures, 
slightly better spreads, right? And, uh, and, and a lot of that will depend on the spread dynamic, on how long duration and additional shutdowns to the extent they occur, how long this um, uh, COVID morass uh, continues. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I know your particular area of expertise is not necessarily originating loans, but what's your sense from your seat in terms of activity levels there? Um, is it, you know, difficult for managers like Bearings to be sourcing new transactions today? Sure. Well, I can give from a from a position of remember the the, the BDC uh, that I work on also participates in all of our financing uh, globally, right? So so private, uh, both U.S. and Europe. And I'll say that I've never seen, uh, and I think you know we made this comment on a on a conference call just yesterday with uh, BBDC and Bearings BDC investors. Uh, not seen volumes this busy. Uh, ever, it's been a very, very robust market for lenders that have that ability uh, to deploy capital. From a from an origination perspective, some of the some of the benefits are pretty simple. Is if a lender went through the COVID crisis with its core sponsors and obligors and was both rational patient understanding, but also had done their work in recognizing the underlying value of the business that they lent to, right? i.e. boring is beautiful. That that benefit of working uh, working positively with sponsors and obligors throughout a difficult time in the market uh, continues to attract more deal flow, right? So, you start to find that the relative share uh, increases, uh, even if right now the pool might be smaller uh, than it was year over year in third quarter deals this quarter versus third quarter deals in 2019. Uh, but we've been very busy because number one, the share increases, and two, um, you know we're we're very fortunate to have a very stable and well designed capital base behind us that allows us to deploy at attractive times such as this one. One of the things that we saw the last crisis in the in the global financial crisis was. Uh, that uh, M&A activity bounced back much more quickly in the middle market space than it did maybe for the, the larger uh, counterparts. Do you expect to see that this time around, or are there signs of that, or is it too early to tell? Uh, you're seeing signs of, of heavy M&A-related activity. As folks get their footing, uh, granted, it'll tie also somewhat to the duration of the the problematic environment that we're in. Uh, but if you have improving confidence and a substantial amount of monetary and fiscal stimulus, um, you could oh, you know, easily predict as if we had as we had post the great financial crisis, right? The lows that it experienced in kind of the fall and early part of the winter. Um, yes, you would likely see, and we are seeing middle market lending uh, make a resurgence. Uh, because remember, these loans uh, they generate um, higher yields relative to their liquid counterparts, you know, as a result of illiqui- illiquidity premium. And right now, this is a fun stat. Take a guess. How, what is the percentage of global corporate and sovereign bonds, right, in this environment, all worldwide, that trade below two percent? You going to give me a guess, Greg? What do you What do you oh, think? Wow, below two. I thought you were going to say ne- negative yielding. No, just go with negative. Just, just, just go with below two, right? Okay. Below two percent. Uh gosh, I would say it's you know north of fifty percent. North of fifty. You're you're right on. It's eighty. Eighty percent of the world's sovereign and corporate debt trades below two percent yield. Hmm. Hmm. And so when you're making a middle market loan uh, to a quality obligor at roughly a 
we'll call it a 7% all-in yield, give or take, uh, you can imagine there's going to be quite a bit of demand for those loans in the future, given where real rates sit. Sure, sure, sure. So, so you've got you know still very much this search for yield as you know as as rabid as ever investors are for for yield. You've got an asset class that's that's offering you yield. You've got uh, activity levels that are probably busier than some people would imagine. I think that's probably Definitely. the case for me. I'm, I'm I've been a little bit surprised to hear how how busy things have been. Um, so there's a lot of seemingly you know positive dynamics going on here, um, but clearly it's not all uh, positive, and, and there's areas of stress and distress. But where, where are you seeing that? Is it the businesses where you'd expect the retail, travel, leisure? Um, is that where you're seeing the the most weakness out there? Yes. Yeah, so you, you you would expect kind of the the public you know markets and the private markets from a business standpoint to be fairly similar because you know remember it's at the end of the day a, a large restaurant and a small restaurant will both be impacted to the extent that there is a, a wide you know government shutdown that keeps people out of uh, their establishments. So we're seeing stress exactly where you would expect it to be. Uh, that being said, um, you know clearly we had not been very focused in those industries just because of, of how we're owned and, and where we invest and kind of our uh, philosophical views on lending to, you know, we'll call them hypercyclicals. And right now, uh, I mean, outside of some of the tertiary markets that might be impacted, think, for example, a software company that would only deal for, you know, salons or restaurants or something to that effect, it really does correlate well with um, extreme stress where you'd see it in the larger markets and liquid areas that are tied to COVID. Um, are are being experienced here, and it's it's very very much focused on those core industries. I think you you know travel and leisure, etc. John, getting back to uh, the paper that you put oh. out earlier this year for a minute. Oh. Sorry, uh, you had to read that. Yeah, it, it holds up. It holds up. Eight <laughs> months later, it still holds up. And and for our uh, <laughs> listeners, if you're interested in in checking out. Yeah, you can find it on bearings.com under viewpoints. Again, it's um, four mistakes investors make in private credit. Um, but getting back to that for a second, uh, you know, one of the uh, concerns you raised there was around uh, what was being marketed as senior debt, um, possibly being not exactly that. So yeah. tell me about that and, and if you've seen that. Um, have you seen any sort of impact of that throughout this crisis so far? Yeah. So, so really, the item that we were discussing, uh, what feels like an eternity ago, was that folks would love to show that I've got this yield product that's a true first lien uh, secured loan, uh, and it's got a high yield. And because I say the term senior, that that in and of itself should mean low risk, right? I'm dollar one in the capital stack, and there's people behind me. Well, really, the way we like to think about it ties to risk in terms of leverage, meaning leverage per turn of EBITDA. So if you, you know, have five times EBITDA, so say $30 million, you know, five times EBITDA would be a $150 million debt uh, piece. All right. And so let's imagine senior leverage was around the four, four and a half times. Well, what would happen is uh, several lenders would come in and argue that there was a, a new term that, that, you know, was created called unitranche, which basically means that we're going to provide more leverage, uh, but still call our debt senior. Well, the the point here is is that that can be an attractive tool, 
right? To be quite honest, and and we are, ourselves also see opportunity in the Unitronch market. The problem is, is when you over lever an asset, right? But you're still trying to give or hope the market gives the same salient, low risk characteristics of true first lien senior debt uh, to it. And, and that th- therein lied the problem. So, for example, and what happened in the crisis, and this is what we saw, if you were over levered from a unit tranche perspective, instead of maybe sticking to your core knitting at roughly four and a half to five times ish on a good business, and you lent six times on a fairly cyclical business or more, six and a half, and we saw some unit tranches in many cases go even higher. Well, yes, in this environment, you did run into a problem, right? Because you had a debt load that couldn't be sustained by the company's EBITDA. So we saw that play out. Uh, we've seen, uh, you know, we've seen several deals, uh, you know, continue to receive support from private equity sponsors, which is of benefit. Uh, but we've also seen some stress, extreme stress, get experienced by uh, dear competitive brethren. Uh, so yeah, that was one theme because remember, you just can't take it face value when someone says senior debt, right? Now let's do okay. Let's understand the leverage characteristics behind that, and more importantly, the EBITDA characteristics of the business uh, to the extent that it gets massively affected by you know the current environment, COVID and or recession. So going forward, I guess based on all that, would you expect to see less Unitron transactions or at least less levered transactions out there? You know, b- back to the comment about eighty percent of the world's debt being below 2%, you're still going to see demand for the structure. And what will happen over time is folks are going to uh, you know, reemerge with this as a tool. They might rebrand it, right? Still call it senior debt instead of Unitronch or gold X, Y, or Z. You know, there's lots of different names for it. Um, I, I'd, I'd say that you know, expect a resurgence, uh, but particularly on the part of those lenders with high levels of discipline, expect them to toe the line. Because there was a level of understanding that, you know, these businesses, when levered heavily, can experience material stress and lead to investor losses. If you think about that competitive environment, um, you know, one of the concerns that I think investors raise in this space is whether or not there's too much capital um, sloshing around here in the system, chasing the same deals, essentially. Um, So I wonder... Uh, if you can help put that into some kind of context for us. So, I mean, the answer is yes. Uh, you know, what would happen is any type of opportunity that creates a technical, uh, technical volatility like COVID, smart managers are going to look to raise capital uh, to attack that opportunity and invest in it. Uh, so there was quite a bit of direct lending, credit opportunity, distressed fund capital uh, raised, right? Uh, all at varying fee structures, you know, all with, you know, leverageability, et cetera. Uh, that capital has to get put to work. Now, believe it or not, that doesn't mean that that the deals that will happen today are necessarily the bad ones. Because believe it or not, while lots of capital has been raised, it's 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 uh, it's all agreed upon that the economy's experienced stress. So you're going to find that there'll be some level of deployment that will occur, and will end up generating uh, return for clients. The question is, 
is how disciplined is that manager going to be in this current environment? Because there has been a lot of money raised and there are opportunities to deploy it, but trying to make sure that you keep your foot on the brake as much as you have, as much as you want to push it on the accelerator can also be a major differentiator so you don't overcommit to one area that ends up uh, causing uh, return detriment. And how about if you just kind of zoom out for a minute and you look at the opportunity for um, institutions like Bearings to be lending into this market and why it exists in the first place? And is there any way to quantify um, you know, how large the opportunity is, whether it's from banks pulling back or, uh, or for other reasons, and the size of the uh, the, the private capital that's been raised that's trying to fill that hole. Is there, I mean, I, I don't want to put you on the spot and ask you for specific numbers, but I, any context around that would be helpful. My colleagues, Eric Lloyd, Ian Fowler, and Adam Wheeler, you know, can, can provide additional context on kind of the, the geographic markets and, and all of the, you know, the size. But, but bottom line is, is as you start to see the, uh, the stress that, ex- that is experienced by a number of industries worldwide, uh, need for capital will exist, particularly as this private lending market further institutionalizes. I think you're very familiar. You talk about banks and bank lending. Um, think about the potential for regulatory stress and or focus, as well as the fact that you know as banks, in terms of number, continually decline. I think we've sh- showed this before. Uh, and more importantly, the need for some of these private companies that still continue to stay private for a very long time um, in terms of their EBITDA growth right, increases, the need for capital here will continue. And so, you know, it, it's hard to give um, it's hard to give numbers uh, to a specific effect, but I'd start with maybe two that, 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 that make me think that the opportunity has quite a few ways to go. Many pensions have seen that this is a core asset class that they want to devote capital to. And on average, the pensions have about 2% of their assets currently uh, in direct lending. Uh, we'd expect that in working and talking with consultants, you know, Cliff Water or others, that that will increase materially over time just based on the risk returns of the class itself. So expect that too, uh, certainly to jump to five. And also expect that as this space continues to professionalize, it will continue to attract companies, one, staying here longer, or two, new formation companies to continue to stay in the private debt apparatus for a very long time. Yeah, that that is great context right there. And I think the point around companies staying private for longer you is, is one that you hear more in reference to private equity, but obviously we're talking about private equity sponsor-backed deals here and these companies need financing. So that, that makes a lot of sense to me and it seems like there's, you know, quite a few reasons to believe that the the structural story around this asset class could have legs for some time to come. If you think about, you know, some of these concepts that we've talked about, whether you're talking about where spreads are, where leverage levels are, thinking about, um, you know, senior debt versus unit tranche, et cetera, et cetera. Um, as you look at this whole space and you think about, okay, what does the next one, two, three years look like here? Are there areas in that spectrum that jump out to you as being more or less attractive at this stage? 
So, you know, it's, it's, um, each one can be attractive in a specific way based on the risk return that an investor is trying to, to, to generate, right? So I'd argue that certainly for f- folks that are going to be looking for lower amounts of volatility uh, with a good yield, right? Uh, your first lien senior secured debt class uh, is a, a very attractive uh, candidate. What are all in net returns? Well, generally speaking, if you have um, you know roughly six to seven percent yields, um, and then you have the ability to lever that, you're talking between eight to ten percent kind of net returns to investor on that asset class. And if of course, look- that's that's obviously you know with my compliance out on no guarantee or anything like that. No, that's no, directionally that's just, where that would just be where you would take spread with leverage, cost of leverage with, and, and then clearly every manager would have a different uh, style of fee structure. Uh, that can be an attractive asset class because it does provide less volatility uh, than it would be if you were thinking about um, uh, investments that have a little bit more, uh, we'll, we'll call it a embedded risk, right? But But in that embedded risk, if it's structured appropriately, you can start to see certain junior debt and or um, uh, certain uh, specialty uh, situation financings that can be well in excess of that. And that would have been depend because it's episodic. So r- rather than maybe focus on one investment, let me just tell you there's a, a broad difference. Um, many folks, I'd imagine, Greg, talk to you and say, let me just it, – it's all about – the product, right? And so if they make widgets, I promise you, Greg, this widget is the best widget in the history of mankind, right? <laughs> Everyone will tell you the widget's amazing. At Bearings, we're not, you know, product is the point we are in a business. It's also more about perspective. And so what happens is Bearings operates a very wide investment frame of reference across many asset classes. And when you add the perspectives of risk return and senior debt, plus risk return and special situation or European private debt, plus um, mortgage finance, all of those perspectives blend into a pot that can provide a, a very strong and I would argue improved investor outcome than the product uh, uh, than the product pusher. And uh, I think this was a point that we made before. You know, uh, some managers we'll call them widget makers. Um, black and white's all they see. You know what, Greg? You're going to come in. It's going to be first lien senior secured for you. Uh, whereas we at Bearings BDC and Bearings Wit Large think about it in terms of technicolor rather than being in black and white. So I appreciate the ask of, of that question. You could see that our asset composition in the BDC has a heavy focus on first lien senior secured debt, but you can also see that there are some additional special situation financings and asset back financings uh, that are being added at this moment in time that have the potential to drive ROE higher. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point because when you you know for the bulk of this conversation anyhow we're talking about middle market corporate lending, but if you think about the private debt asset class overall, and, you, and actually if you even go broader than that, I think about the private markets. Um, I've seen some interesting stats from you and your team about you know the size of those markets that are probably much bigger than people maybe even realize, and also the of course the breadth. Um, so mm-hmm. you're not talking about even just pure corporate exposure, but private debt exposure to some of the other asset classes, real estate and others that you uh, have mentioned here. So I think that perspective and looking across that you know, risk return, uh, relative value spectrum across all of these various private debt asset classes, 
Um, I just intuitively makes a lot of sense because obviously the markets are constantly moving. And, you know, we may talk today and, and you know, middle market lending could be uh, the most attractive. We may talk, you know, three months from now and real estate debt or private placements or something like that could be, uh, for whatever reason, technical or fundamental, um, offering the best value at that given time. It is a fundamental difference because here's the other uh, an item that we find is is useful when you get to inform your perspectives uh, based on perspectives of other asset classes. Having that wide frame of reference makes us a better middle market lender because if what we are looking at in terms of risk-adjusted return being generated from our close counterparts in liquid or uh, you know the returns that can be coming out in you know private asset-backed finance, that should inform us in the spread that we would look to charge. Right to make sure that there's some level of parity. So there's value in the choice, but there's also value from a perspective standpoint in terms of the information that gets shared when you're housed inside of uh, one large asset manager with experience across asset classes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, John, you mentioned the BDC earlier, and I know there are a number of ways for investors to gain access to the opportunity that we're talking about. You know, obviously, if you've got commingled private funds, you've got separately managed accounts, you've got public and private BDCs, uh, a lot of different choices out there. And I know that you have been intimately involved in many of these types of vehicles. So if we you know, sit in the investor's seat for a minute and we think about navigating this you know, broad menu of choices, how, how would you think about that you know, high level? I know we could probably have an hour or much longer discussion on, on the intricacies of all these vehicles, but, um, but tell me just high level what you're thinking about. And, and also, um, if you think about the pros and the cons between some sure. of these vehicles, I'm curious actually if any of your thinking has changed throughout this pandemic on the best way to access these investments. Believe it or not, the one theme I'd argue is that access to the class continues to increase. You know, and then there's going to be a couple of of ways to to do that. I know we we recently hosted a conference call uh, with the CIO of the state of South Carolina, as well as the CIO of Mass Mutual and uh, Eric Lloyd, who also runs our private asset businesses. And there was a um, a discussion of you know what are the vessels in which you utilize as an institutional investor? And the CIO of South Carolina effectively said, you know, we did look at it three ways, right? We've got standard GP or LP funds uh, that you invest in. Now, these would be traditional for every large institutional investor, really hard for the wealth platform and RIAs to access, just difficult. And then secondly, uh, the CIO of South Carolina said, you know, well, we can do it in the form of, of joint ventures, right, where we can work with one party on a bespoke basis and go across a wide investment frame, right? And that would also not be available uh, for um, uh, wealth investors either, uh, but, but certainly invest uh, okay for extremely large limited partners that, that, that like a hand in the management of their assets. And then finally, you know, he said this, he goes, uh, we also look at, at the BDC structure, and in particular, the private BDC structure. Um, and so, the, the, that the wealth platform uh, can access. There's really no, in our view, uh, major, uh, uh, try to give major pitfalls or others that would only say favor one versus the other. They all have unique benefits in their own way. They all have unique costs. But I'd say the theme of expansion of how this is getting access, particularly through BDCs, as well as, um, as, well as through some strategic joint ventures, 
that's that's rapidly increasing and i'd say the pandemic uh has has driven more folks uh, to that structure so pros and cons if you're in a public BDC structure today, right? I'll just outline BBDC, which which currently has a yield of around eight percent, right? There you have the ability to invest in a in a publicly traded stock as if you were buying Amazon or Google. That's very easy, and you also have liquidity, right? That liquidity and the upside that's offered for that can be very beneficial, particularly if you're buying a point when the stock is undervalued. The, the, the cost there is volatility. There will be volatility as stocks move based on market data. It's just normal. And if you're uh, able to handle that volatility, it can be of to your, uh, certainly to your benefit. Then there's a private BDC structure. And I'll just use this based on our own experience. Uh, but the private BDC structure will offer a, a set yield, let's say in this case, 9%. But that private BDC structure does not pub- publicly trade. And so the value of an investor investment on a per share basis is going to not include the volatility of a stock price moving up and down. Right, it's just the value of the assets themselves. So here's the the catch, though, is that there's no uh, immediate liquidity, same to the to the degree that you would have received it with uh, public BDC. Uh, many investors are more than happy to lock up their capital, um, provided that they trust the manager for a good distribution with limited volatility, because they know over time that will drive a, a strong outcome. Um, and so we've seen a lot of growth in that category as an industry overall. But I will also say that even in markets like these, when stocks you know can can move up and down, you can also see level of valuation lift in the public BDC marketplace uh, as more and more folks build and you know talk about confidence, building confidence, which can lead to superior returns. It kind of just depends as as the investor on what you think about the value of liquidity and the potential return upside that you'd look for. There's a lot there. I mean, like I said, I think we could uh, do an episode purely on you know public versus private BDCs alone. But um, what uh, a barn burner that would be! <laughs> exactly, exactly. Okay, all right, John. So just finishing up here, um, the last thing I just wanted to ask you about here was you know we've spoken before about this concept of. Uh, you know, principal investment and, you know, how that differs maybe from a pure asset management perspective. But for our listeners out there, you know, we've talked about uh, some of the market color and dynamics of what you're seeing out there. We've talked about, you know, some of the pros and cons of gaining access to the asset class in different ways. But, you know, why should they be concerned about whether or not their manager is a principal investor or not? So, you know, this just gets to a fundamental point where if, you know, over over the years and wearing a couple hats and being uh, uh, involved in this space, the great equalizer of alignment is if the manager is participating in the underlying returns at the asset level. Because remember, lots of folks will love to talk about their funds, right? But then, of course, we invest in our funds. However, the, the, there are fees that come off of those funds. The dynamic is 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 a bit different. So when we talk about principal investor first, 
uh, we, uh, as as a, as a uniquely owned uh, manager with a very large parent that has committed capital to the strategy, invest our own capital in those transactions themselves, say a middle market loan that you'd referenced. And then, of course, we have the parts of the, the loan for our third-party clients. It's all split pro rata. So we sit right alongside our clients in the underlying assets themselves. And so when you live off the return of the assets and not the fees associated off the assets, right, in the form of them being managed, that's a very different level of alignment because it means that your capital uh, is at risk just like the investors, right? As opposed to, we'll call it much less capital being risked versus the gain that's associated with those fees. So so that's the major difference uh, between, we'll call it, principal investor and asset manager. Now, one of the benefits are we try to we try to merge this, to, you know, together. In that, you know, it can be a, a very symbiotic relationship uh, where you're making sure you're both participating uh, in the the risk adjusted returns of the loans. To me, that's also a heavy governor on risk because when folks put their own capital into transactions you'll find that often uh, you know there is a very high degree of focus on the risk adjusted returns particularly the risk of loss right as opposed to a situation where it's just done on a third party capital basis so we saw that go throughout the cycle um, here to outline that that you know at least in our in our private credit context we've been very fortunate in looking at the performance of the underlying uh, uh, loans, as we outlined on our public uh, conference call, you know, with uh, no loans on non-accrual and and no uh, substantial, we'll call it restructured loans, as folks try to restructure or redefine away their uh, their problem credits. And I'll attribute a lot of that to focus on uh, principal investor first. So today, I'd say that level of incentive and focus is arguably the most important, and it's a good capstone to leave maybe a comment. I think that the the CIO of South Carolina made on a, on a recent call uh, with us, which is if you focus in on underlying asset quality discipline, meaning the manager, and alignment in those two cases, generally the risk return um, you know, objective that you're looking to achieve can take care of itself. And so we spend a heavy amount of time. You heard now discipline, right, from us today, uh, but then also this alignment piece, which we find very unique to us uh, and very important, is uh, is of benefit to our investors and uh, to those that, that that follow that example to the space writ large. Yeah, that alignment of interests is just absolutely crucial. Well, John, uh, this has been a pleasure catching up with you. Um, I appreciate you uh, catching us up on the the private credit space, what you and the team have been up to. Uh, you've been very productive throughout this uh, time of face masks and quarantines. So um, uh, that's great to hear. Um, but I also really appreciate your insight into some of the, the trends that are driving these markets currently and that we expect to you know, drive them in the years ahead. So great catching up and uh, let's get you back on the show in early 21. We'll do it in the form of a, do it in the form of a song. I'll bring the guitar. Oh, I love it. All right. That's a, that's a promise. All right. Oh, thanks, John. <laughs> All right. See you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to episode number five of season three of Streaming Income. 
Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you are the first to hear about our latest episodes. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.